Hey everybody, welcome to episode 26 of Literary Disco, the year one episode. Today marks the one year anniversary of this podcast, so in honor of that, we will be recording a super special games edition of the show. All literary, pin the tail on the donkey. Instead of our usual bookshelf revisit, we'll start with um, each of us contributing a favorite book to the new Literary Disco Hall of Fame. Then we will introduce a game called Words to Your Mother. No, we're going to say it the way we would say it, which is Words to Your Mother. But it has a Z, right? It's words with a Z? Right. Yeah, it's the words with a Z. And mother with a U. Then uh, Julia will ask Todd and me to judge a book by its cover. Todd will try and stump us with his poet voice. And then I will try and stump Julia and Todd with a brand new Classics Corner with two Ks. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hello there, sir, and happy birthday. Hi. Happy birthday to you guys. We are... Barely able to talk, right? I don't, I don't, none of us have kids. I don't know what happens when you're a year old. All right, so who wants to add their first book to the Hall of Fame? I would like to add my first book to the Hall of Fame. All right, let's hear it. Talk. This is actually sort of a sad story. Um, well, not a terribly sad story. Um, a couple weeks ago, um, actually, Julie and I were together. We were in Boston at the time, and I found out that my great literary mentor, a man named Tom Filer, had died. Um, he was my first real writing teacher. He had been a teacher of mine at UCLA, and then I took a private workshop in his house. And he lived on the grounds of Peter Graves' house in Santa Monica Canyon. He was the caretaker for the grounds there. And so whenever you'd come to a workshop, you would park your car, and then Peter Graves would come out and scream at you for blocking um, his driveway or where the garbage cans were being Graves picked is. up. Oh, my God. Peter Sorry. Graves... Peter Graves is uh, Mission Impossible. He's a great American actor. Oh, okay. Um, he, if you ever saw the movie Airplane, he was the captain of the sh of the plane in Airplane. So uh, Tom Filer lived in this little house uh, on Peter Graves' property, and he watched over things, and he held this workshop there. And it was a workshop of really talented people. Also in the workshop with me at the time um, was my friend and my colleague and the great short story writer and novelist Mary Carrie Waters was in the class. Just a bunch of people. Um, so at any rate, he, he died a couple weeks ago. I found out when, when we were in Boston, um, he had died in, uh, of old age, basically. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about him. And yesterday I went and pulled out uh, his first novel. Um, and his, really, his only novel that was published um, that he didn't self-publish. And it was a book called The Man on Watch. And he had gotten a really bad review of it in the New York Times. And this is in like 1961 or 62. And it had basically crushed him. Um, he, he didn't write another novel again for many, many years. Mm. Um, and so I pulled the book out and I opened it up and there was a beautiful inscription in the book um, that told me, that said, to not uh, overflow my own promise, which um, sort of brought me to tears when I saw it. At any rate, I've been thinking a lot about Tom and I have been thinking about this great book he gave me, and I think I've mentioned it in the past, called Fifth Business by Robertson Davies. Um, and I have a couple different versions of this book. It's one of those books that I've bought several different copies of. Uh, and I also have, uh, I received as a gift, a signed book by Robertson Davies from one of my former students. He's been dead for many years, so it was really difficult to get that signed, I suspect. Um, I guess through the Ouija board, maybe. Um, at any rate, uh, I, ju I just pulled out one of the copies of Fifth Business to talk about today. And I opened it up and I had forgotten that Tom had given it to me. And there's an inscription inside here. It says, For Todd. 
Reading A Prayer for Ellen Meany, which I'm enjoying, um, made me think of this novel, which I love. A Baseball, A Snowball, Interesting. All Good Wishes, Tom, May 18th, 1998. And Fifth Business, this novel by Robertson Davies, uh, is mentioned in A Prayer for Ellen Meany by John Irving, which at the time in the late 1990s was one of my favorite books. I guess it probably still is. But then I read Robertson Davies' Fifth Business and realized how much John Irving had been influenced by that. And it was just, it's a tremendous book about fate uh, and about um, about the different actors in our lives. Um, and it is predicated on a young child throwing a snowball at a friend, missing his friend and hitting a pregnant woman. And the pregnant woman, after being hit in the head with the snowball, which it turns out has a rock in it, um, gives birth to a premature child, which sets Ooh. forth a series of calamities. Uh, in in fact, a trilogy of books by Robertson Davies. So it's um, lighthearted stuff. Uh, yeah, it's actually, it, it is actually pretty funny uh, really? in places. Yeah, it's it's an absurd book. Um, in addition, in addition to being elegant and 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 extraordinarily interior, you know, it, it's a lot about. Um, people reckoning with their lives and sometimes the reckoning of their lives is is really absurd and fifth robertson davies in general is is not well known in america anymore because he's been dead for over 20 years but also because he's a canadian and people i think just don't judge canadians correctly um i can think of a couple canadians i like i like um um brian adams oh neil young <laughs> neil young uh, um yes that's about it i, I like neil young but so I'm putting this one in my Hall of Fame, Fifth Business by Robertson Davies, because it uh, it had a pretty profound effect on me when I read it, but mostly because I was profoundly affected by um, this good gentleman, Tom Filer, who um, has left this plane of existence for somewhere better, I hope. That's really nice, Todd. That's the nicest you've ever been on this show. <laughs> I think you're probably right. I'll, that will change shortly. <laughs> There's a couple of factors as to why I picked the book that I picked, but um, today is the 100th anniversary of the founding of my elementary school. Oh, how weird. And my mom emailed me, you know, like, I went to the assembly and uh, my principal's <laughs> name, my principal's name was literally, actually, Mrs. Friend. So <laughs> it was just like, it's an adorable place. It's an adorable occurrence. But I don't, I have no idea why, but just thinking about this little simple elementary school i just it made me so emotional mm -hmm. um of like the a number of teachers who really set me like like put me on a little boat and sent me down the river with a tiger yeah. and a hyena <laughs> and an um, indian man saying mrs pastel mrs pastel wait no? i am the monkey that dies in this scenario yes that is correct yeah, <laughs> Great. yeah. yeah you're the monkey yeah. i was pretty quick uh, i was trying to figure out how, the, how it, it worked too. out but you knew right away <laughs> yeah i'm the monkey uh anyway huh. uh sorry guys spoiler alert uh we won't say what book though so you're, you're fine <laughs> um <laughs> But I, I don't know. It's just like the, uh, I, I feel like I've had a lot of mentors, but they're you know for a short period of time. You know, like I always had a teacher who really recommended some course of action to me, or book, or artistic you know passion, and I was so obedient that I would do it. So I really owe these people a lot. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, the other thing that occurred to me today, or, or didn't occur to me, that came my way is uh, the New York Times Art Speak blog published this little blog post in which they gathered together all of these studies. Um, it's so interesting. I put it up on my Facebook, um, where 
the number of emotion words used in books changes over time. So Ooh. basically, like, the words that are in our books are getting less emotional. Well, that's so, weird. Like, Yeah, so you can search them um, in Google, you know, Google Books, their huge database thing. So there's certain peaks where writing was really emotional, and then and they, like, search for all these, like, happy and sad words, and they're, like, clumped together in different emotions. So you can, like, sort for emotions. So there was, like, a, so, like, a really sad time when books were using the most sad words was around World War II. And the most happy or and, like, communal words were in the 60s. So there's this huge burst of, like, communal speak entering books so it's really interesting that and is so interesting i have yeah. i've i like i kind of don't understand that because i mean in a way i don't know the whole notion of like emotional words is a little weird to me like how do you determine if a word is a happy word or a sad word really i mean it just means descriptions of emotional states i mean is that what we're talking nazi about? not a happy word right but <laughs> I mean, that's what I like. Yeah. What do you like? Does this mean writers are becoming less descriptive of emotional states and using more sort of external action to arouse mm -hmm. emotions in readers? Maybe. I mean, it's so much data that it's hard to draw conclusions from. And obviously, people are like, well, this is meaningless. But there is a trend, and it, the trend itself is interesting. I mean, I think it's too. I wouldn't want to draw any huge conclusions, but, you know, words, so they're grouped together. So, like, joy, mm -hmm. love, happiness, it, there are huge bursts in those kinds of words in certain periods of time. But I do think what you're saying, Ryder, is, um, is significant because I feel like a lot of, at least a lot of the fiction that I read now is... Um, it's like more suggestive of emotion and it never, right. it rarely wants to name the emotion. Right. You know? Right. I mean, and also I think it's a stylistic thing is that after right. World War II, there was such a precipitous drop off in the number of omniscient narrators in fiction, for instance, where you're going to be telegraphing exactly what people's emotions were when you're writing in right. an omniscient voice. Yeah. But in first person or third person close, which is basically, you know, first person with just a proper name these days. I think now it's all about showing versus telling, you know, that, that mm -hmm. which is a dumb adage because it's called storytelling, not story showing, but it's never mind telling. that. It's all telling. It's all telling. But that makes a lot of sense. But I also wonder, like, in the 80s when there were all those books where people were coked out of their minds, like those, like <laughs> Jay McInerney, the Brett Easton Ellis books, it, you know, is it all about euphoria in the 80s and in the 90s? Is it all about... Um, Greed. It's, I'm I'm fascinated by this. Yes, it's very interesting. So go check out the study. Everyone. I shall do that. Um, our, I'll put it on our literary disco Facebook too. So anyway, these two pieces of information got me thinking about what books make me really emotional, and you know, do I cry at books anymore, or as much as I used to? Or it's like, is that a trend that has changed? It's very interesting to think about. Um, so the book that. Um, I came across while I was looking for a book. It's a children's book. I love them. You guys know. Um, and it is the book. I bet a lot of our listeners will be very excited. Where the Wed Red Fern Grows by oh, Wilson Rawls. Oh, cried my fucking eyes out in that book. I think this Jesus. is the most I have ever cried. Good God. Book. That book, I, I thought I, I was all of like 
10 or whatever when I yeah. read that. I thought oh, yeah. that was it. I'm going to have to be put in a home. That book and then Tuck Everlasting. Right? Oh, oh, yeah. Both those books I remember <laughs> as a kid being like really hard. Like just or not fun. Bridge and, like, Over Terabithia. I remember yep, crying oh, I never in read class over Bridge Over Terabithia. <laughs> because we re- the teacher read yeah. it and we all sat in a circle. And, and this was like fourth grade. I was losing my shit in my fourth grade class. And I already had it tough because I was a fat little kid and people teased me. And now I'm the guy crying. Like, I needed that on my conscience. I remember Rizal Bonkadine. He really, he gave me some shit after that. I'm swearing a lot, apparently. Wait, Um, what's his name? His name was Rizal Bunkadine. <laughs> I will hell? find that guy on Facebook and he How will How did he apologize. not get made fun of for that name, at least? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that is, it is curious. Rizal Bunkerdine? Like, Bunkadine. It's all about not being the, the crying fat kid is, that's the bottom. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, is. yeah, it, he, he could have been a, co- a total leper. He wasn't the kid crying over a bridge over Terabithia while shoving zingers in his mouth. <laughs> Go ahead and laugh at me, Ryder. I'm not laughing at you. I'm feeling sad for <laughs> How poor little dare Todd. you? How dare Todd. you? And I just wish I just wish somebody could have grabbed Bunker Dean back then. And, you know, like where's he now? Like if he couldn't feel for Bridges of Terabithia or whatever, I I, I worry more about the kids who don't cry at books. There might have been a language thing. That's I don't know if he was an American citizen in retrospect. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Yeah, all three of those books are sad for totally different reasons. I mean, Bridget Not as sad as my life, but (laughs) sad. Yeah, that has a sudden death in it. And Tuck Everlasting is... I'm glad you brought that up. I haven't thought about that in a long time. But that book is very creepy. Yeah, Because it's about immortality, but it's in, like, a real situation. It's not fantastical. Mm -hmm. It's just people are really depressed because they have to live forever. Oh, God, that book was terrifying. And so, yeah, so Where the Red Fern Grows is about two hunting dogs and a boy who loves them. And God, you can't. You can't. Don't say another word. We can't can't give it away. I mean, everyone knows Where the Red Fern Grows. There was a movie, wasn't there? Like, everyone knows. Yeah, but who cares? Who cares about the movie? Like, this book is, it's like, it's such a, it's an adventure story, and it's just about this boy getting to learn how to kill raccoons with his dogs. It's a really good book. But oh. I wish that a book could break me down like this book broke me down. There have been several, and I'm sure we'll talk about them in other episodes. But What about Interstellar Pig? That one didn't make you, didn't make you cry at all? That one really scared me. And we're gonna. We still have to read that at some point. We, we do have to read that. Just That's gonna title. be like uh, on the old TV show Moonlighting. There's that case that they never solved, <laughs> and Interstellar Pig is gonna be the case that we never solved. Anyway, that was where the wed. Oh, I keep doing this. Where the, <laughs> where the red fern grows. <laughs> where the wed oh fern grows. I'm reverting into a childlike state. So, what's your Hall of Fame book, writer? Well, speaking of books that make you cry, uh, this is an interesting <laughs> book because um, you know how sometimes, like, well, I guess you guys get this all the time where somebody asks you what your favorite book is and you have to all just kind time. of pick one arbitrarily and right. like, yep. stick with it. Well, so my answer to that question since the age of like 15 when I first read this book has been Edward Abbey's The Fool's Progress. Um, and the reason is that it's just obscure enough that most people haven't read it. So I usually could just say that's my favorite book and everybody will be like, yeah, okay, whatever. But it, it is also the book that I probably read the most. I've read it maybe four or five times, which is a lot because it's, it's, it's not a short book. Um, but I remember the second time I read this book, I was moving to New York and um, 
my girlfriend and I at the time were reading the book aloud to each other while we drove across the country. And I started... Did you, did you not have a radio? We did, but we were reading did, books aloud anyway. Did, did you not have... I, I like books. I don't know if you oh, like books. Did you not have a window you uh, could look out of? Reading books aloud is amazing. Yes, it's, it's an amazing process. Activity. I have a friend who... As they were getting divorced, she and her husband read The Lord of the Rings to each other, and that precipitated their divorce. Yeah, because that's saying. boring as shit. That's why. <laughs> this oh, was no. This was a very Go good on. experience reading this aloud, and I was moving to New York, and this book is about somebody who had left home when they were young and uh, lost touch with their parents, and and so when it got near the end of the book, I was reading it aloud, just tears streaming down my face as I read it. Um, and I didn't realize how much this book had gotten under my skin in like the four years that I hadn't read it at that point. So every couple of years, I make it a habit to reread this book. And because I end up suggesting when people ask me what my favorite book is, I end up saying this book. A lot of my friends and, and family have read it, too. Um, it's an amazing book. Edward Abbey is this. Uh, it's not Edward Albee. Edward Albee was a very famous playwright. Edward Abbey became mostly famous for a book he wrote called Desert Solitaire, which is a nonfiction book. He was one of the first environmentalists, really. In the late 60s, he was a park ranger in Utah. And he wrote, after spending about three or four years in the desert at Arches National Park in Utah, he wrote Desert Solitaire, which is about being alone in the desert as a park ranger. And his thoughts, and he had just had this real, he had a real direct style. And even though he had a very nuanced mind, he was very crass and funny sexist uh slightly racist at times like there's issues with Edward <laughs> didn't Abbey. really care for jews or blacks no, you know he has things in his books i mean he was almost he was basically an anarchist mm -hmm. so he was a real libertarian anarchist but he was also an incredible environmentalist which nowadays i think is a real weird combination but back then when environmentalism wasn't a thing yet i mean this was right after desert solitaire was only a couple years after rachel carson uh, published silent spring so it was, it was sort of a new movement, and he was advocating things like uh, no cars in national parks, which we do mm. now have in a lot of national parks. But he was saying that, you know, 40 years before anybody did things like that. He also yeah. wrote a very, very funny book called The Monkey Wrench Gang, which was the start of the eco-terrorism movement. He, it's a book where he, had, he created characters that went around destroying construction sites and um, taking taking apart machines that were like chopping down trees and whatnot. Hmm. So, and that he meant it as a very dark satire, but actually people took it up as a movement. And there was an organization called Earth First, which became a little bit more militant. They never actually wanted to hurt people, obviously, but they did things like blow up construction sites when nobody right. was there. And and so Edward Abbey is a very controversial figure. This book I would recommend though because it's not. It's, it's the least controversial, and to me, it's his, it's his masterpiece. He found out he was dying um, in the mid-'80s. He had cancer, and so he decided to write this novel, which is essentially an autobiography, and it opens with this figure, this, this character of um, Henry Lightcap, who is you know basically Edward Abbey, this old, cantankerous, sexist anarchist, <laughs> whose fourth wife is leaving him for all those reasons I just listed. And so he's sort of reflecting on his life and he gets into a car with his old dog and they drive across country because he wants to make it home before he dies. Um, hmm. 
and his home is in West Virginia, and he grew up this sort of redneck lifestyle with a very um, libertarian father, and so the book is his present-day journey driving across the country with his dog in 1988, but then it flashes back to mostly the romantic relationships throughout his life, but also growing up as a kid in uh, West Virginia, in this coal mining town, and it's just a beautiful, really, really smart, really, really funny book that rips your heart out by the end. Um, so, yeah, I can't say... I mean, I, I, I've met people who, like, can't stand Edward Abbey, um, and I get it. Most people have never really heard of him, but if you go down the rabbit hole of Edward Abbey's career, he is a brilliant writer, regardless of his politics or how you feel about any of those issues. Specifically, he's a brilliant enough writer that it's worth reading his stuff. Desert Solitaire is wonderful and brilliant uh but the fool's progress is sort of his missed masterpiece and it's his last book he wrote and i love it and it's i still it's my answer to the question what's your favorite book uh it still still holds up for me so it's about time for me to reread it again do you want to maybe go on a road trip with me and we could read it to each other yeah that sounds good we'll just roll the windows up turn the radio off and get some cigarettes and smoke and and read Todd, have you seriously never read a book aloud to someone or with someone? Uh, yeah, your wife is incredibly literary minded. Yeah, we've never, um, no, we've never read books aloud to one another. What about listening to books on tape? Well, you guys have to remember tape? the thing. Yeah, books on tape, of course. we got to remember, I, I hate going to readings. So the idea of being locked in a car while someone other than, like, <laughs> Colin Firth is reading to me is, is, like, the worst thing I could possibly imagine. All right, so we're now going to move on to a new game that um, we're not sure. That's not even really a game. That's just a section called Words <laughs> to Your Mother, which is... Uh, we just, I, I brought this up, I, I suggested this uh, segment for the show because I often look up words while I'm reading, and I enjoy that. To me, that's a part of reading, is adding to your vocabulary and becoming obsessed with a new word, and it's something that has become so much easier nowadays. Like, I used to have a whole system where I would, you know, I have a whole system of, like, underlining and note-taking within my books, and if I circled a word, that meant I had to go look it up later. So I would like be, be reading, and then I would go look up in like my Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, but nowadays, like if you're reading on a on a, a tablet, you could just click on that word, and it like yeah. gives you the definition. Or you can, um, you know, obviously just go over to your computer and type in a word. So like I no longer have to circle words; I just look them up right then. But anyway, I'd assume that a lot of our listeners probably are interested in words and look up words a lot too while they're reading so i thought this would be a good thing to bring up like what is a word that you have looked up recently and why did you look it up and what do you think about it can uh, i just interject here that yeah. you are a nerd like yes. <laughs> oh there's no way around it there's Todd's no way around. arch nemesis what's his name Razal bunkadine i'm gonna call him Razal <laughs> Um <laughs> And I should note, he was not really my arch nemesis. I just remember him picking on me for that particular thing. I see him, I see him with a mustache, like already in fourth grade. He had a mustache and he had a foreign accent, right? He had like a vaguely Eastern Actually, European accent. I had to tell you, he had like some weird skin condition, like where he was, he, had, he must have like eczema or something. He had super dry skin that would always flake off of him. But because I was lower than him on the social strata, like I was his little bitch when I started crying because I was not 
as cool as the guy whose skin was falling off of him. Hmm. Anyway, you were saying, Julia, he would have made fun of me for looking up words. I'm just, that's, yes, that was my point. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, yeah. Ryder. Why don't you start us off? Tell us what well, you Well, all right. Up. So the, bo- the word uh, is not one that I read recently. It's a word that I um, was going to sleep. And have you guys ever had just a word come to you and you don't know what it means, but you know it's a real word? And you love it for whatever reason, uh, but this is a no. no. God, you really? need medication. I'm totally there is alone something on this? seriously wrong with you. <laughs> really, Julia? You never have this happen. I know what you mean. Yes, no, okay. I do. So I was going to bed the other night, and the word threnody came into my head. Threnody. Threnody. And I was like, I love this word. I have no idea what it means. I've read it. I know it's a real word. I have no idea what it means. So the next morning, it was still running through my head, and I had to look it up. And a threnody is basically a song for the dead or a Ooh. poem for the dead. So it's sort of like an elegy. As far as I can tell, it doesn't have any real distinction from an elegy. Um, it's just the the Greek word. I think it's Greek. Uh, let me look it up again. Threnody? How, yeah, how so it, really it originates right from the Greek word threnodia or whatever. Oh, but, yeah. Yes. So this was, I just love the sound of this word. It reminds me of like melody or something about it just sounds nice to me. Um, so I'm going to continue to use this It also sounds like a, like a lung condition. Oh, really? grandma died of threnody. She a kept coughing up the mucus. Then it killed her. Uh, that's you know what's really creepy about that writer is when I was thinking about words um, that I really loved. Elegy was one of the first ones that came to mind. Oh. So I elegy is a great on, word. We are really on a depressing wavelength today. We guys. are. What's wrong with us? <laughs> so Todd, what do you have? Well, I haven't looked up any words lately, but I was thinking about the instances in my life um, where I have heard a word and repeated it over and over again and not known what it meant and then eventually at some later date had to go look it up. And so I was thinking of the two words that I learned about in songs. Um, the first being the word moot, as in the point is probably moot from mm-hmm. Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield. <laughs> and That was the first time you heard that? That was the first time I had heard the word moot and it. I was like, oh. And I had to go look that up in the... Um, in, in the Webster's Dictionary, and I was like, that is a great word. But the the word that actually popped back into my head the other day, uh, I was listening to Spotify as I was working, and the song Nemesis by the band Shriekback, which is a horrible band in the 80s, uh, came on. And Shriekback was notable for having lots of songs about weird things like, like ancient fith, fish and shit. Um, but in the song Nemesis, there's a line, Big Black Nemesis, Parthenogenesis, Everybody Ooh. Happy as the Dead Come Home. And for years, I just sang that and was like, oh yeah, Parthenogenesis. I had no idea what I was saying. And so one day I was like, I gotta look up what the hell Parthenogenesis is. And would you guys like to know what Parthenogenesis is? Please. Yes. And this is in a song that they used to play like at prom and shit across the country. Well, like goth prom, at any rate. Um, It's a form of reproduction in which an unfertilized egg develops in a new individual, occurring commonly among insects and certain other anthropods. That's in a song. So wait, what does that mean? Does that mean that... It means asexual reproduction. So it's like those frogs that can... Yeah, that can make their own babies. Make their own babies. Yeah. Weird. 
So that was in the song Nemesis by Shriekback that in the 80s, when I was pegging my pants and wearing creepers and my hair was spiked up everywhere and I was buttoning my shirts all the way to the top and wearing sport coats, even though it was 125 degrees and I was dressed like I was in the Pet Shop Boys, I was singing that at the mall en route to the Orange Julius. The fatness of childhood had dissipated into sad gothness for a year, and that was the song I sang. Aww. Big Black Nemesis, Parthenogenesis. Everybody happy as the dead come home. It's it's That's a cool word. A great word. It, it is has no practical application in your normal life. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> but not neither does Threnody. Okay, well I'm gonna go uh, a much shorter route and say the word that I picked, um, and I've known the meaning of this word for a while, but it's still a great word. Is fop. I oh, think it is a hilarious great word. word. <laughs> it's for some reason it just fits what it is. Too. Yes, it's, I just love that word. I, this also came to me through a song. I was thinking about it, and it's used in um, the musical Sweeney Todd, and it's used as a rhyme. Um, if you guys, I don't think, you, are you guys familiar with Sweeney Todd, the mm-hmm. musical? I've seen the so movie, there's there's a lot. There's a whole song about um, baking people of different professions into pies, and it's really funny. And <laughs> what's great about it is like they they go through so many strange jobs and then make puns off of, you know, how, how that pie would taste. So, um, people, I'm doing a horrible job explaining. It's absolutely hilarious to listen to. But, um, so like one of them is, um, you can have a sailor, but, um, do you want it with or without his privates? Because, (laughs) Yeah, they're <laughs> cooking people. Right. So, gotcha. wah, wah. but anyway, so they they use fop <laughs> several times in the song, and it's just like it's such like a light, uh, funny word. I love the way it actually actually sounds, and it's just like great for comedic um, timing. So, if you don't know, a fop is basically a dandy or like a fancy man. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's the best definition. Right. And is, um, it, is it specifically from like the 18th century? Or uh, for some reason, I have it in my mind. It's like a fop is one of those guys that wore like the big blousey shirts. Right. With and like bow ties the things and suspenders. that, like the, 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 you know, the shirts that have like the sleeves that frill out at the bottom. Like yes. that's a fop. That's what I come yes. to my so, mind. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so I was looking around um, when I was thinking about it and. Uh, so Huffington Post named it in a, or named the word fop doodle, which is the longer <laughs> version of fop, really? as, as one of the sad lost words. And here's what they say. Um, people started to use the word fop doodle in the 17th century. A fop was a fool. A doodle was a simpleton. So a fop doodle was a fool twice over. Oh. Country bumpkins would be called fop doodles, but so could the fashionable set because fop also developed the meaning of vain dandy. What would define a modern day fop? I think it would be like a silly metrosexual. Right. Yes. I agree. <laughs> yes. So, well, that was words to your mother, guys. Woohoo. Stop. Collaborate and listen. Okay, so we are going to play um, all of our games for you guys because it's our birthday and we'll do what we want to. Happy birthday! Hope you enjoyed us talking about crying for the first (laughs) half. We opened with a real downer. Okay, so, um, all right, good. (laughs) Good transition. All right, so I'm going to read you guys. That's a hint. I'm going to read you guys the first sentences of three different books, and you are going to guess what those books are, or at least what they're about. Okay. Okay? 
Gotcha. Are you on board? Yes. All right. We haven't done this Here in a long go. time. We haven't done this in a long time, and usually Julia's the one guessing because she nails it every time. Yes. Remember? <laughs> Actually, she also nails it in poet voice. She's like, I believe that's a 19th century manual of manners for women. And like, yes. <laughs> that of is a current, current issue of so Life insane. and Style. Yeah. Oh, that's page 54 of... Although, Todd, you're the one that nailed one of the things I was reading, too, within the first, like, couple words. Oh, yeah, Carter Beats the Devil. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. Book one. Chapter one. When I wrote the following account of my experiences with rats, I lived in an apartment building on a block filled with other apartment buildings amidst the approximately 8 million people in New York City, and I paid rent to a landlord that I never actually met though I did meet the superintendent, who was a very nice guy. Okay. Okay. I think it's a kid's book. YA novel, for sure. YA novel. YA, for sure. And the rats, huh? Is The Secret of Nim based on a book, or is that just a cartoon? (laughs) The Secret of Nim takes place on a ship, doesn't it? No, it takes place on a farm, and there's all these rats, the Nim rats, who have escaped from a... uh, They're all really smart, because they've escaped from... Um, a laboratory. You don't remember The Secret of Nim? Uh, there's right, some, I thought maybe it was a There's some rat-based cartoon film that took place on a boat. I don't remember what it was. Okay. But what about, what's the, what's the one with the scooter? With the, uh, that's Stuart Little. Stuart Or yeah. there's also, um, mouse. Okay. the mouse and oh, the motorcycle. The mouse. Mouse, mouse and the motorcycle. motorcycle. That's what love I was thinking of. Gotta love those. Yeah. Cried my eyes out, mouse and motorcycle. <laughs> and resolve Bonkadine, that asshole. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so, but, but, yeah, this is definitely a YA novel, just also because, not just because of the rats reference, but I think because... Just the wording, you know, like the landlord is, there's like the use of the word guy. It, it feels very colloquial and simple, yes. which is good. Or it's a YA novel that is also sort of about like a kid who's on the precipice of falling deep into drug addiction. Okay, now I'm going to throw out another possibility. This is this is a nonfiction first person yes, like, memoir. Yes, it's Oliver Sacks. his yeah. life story beginning his research into the workings of the human mind. Yeah, this might be somebody. This might, yeah, we, I'm just going the whole other way now because that that the weird like eight million people in New York thing makes very me think, technical. Oh, there's yeah, there's something. They're they're keeping it colloquial for now, but they're going to get technical later right. and uh, and really explore, delve into like the psychology of some, I don't know, rat study that they were a part of. Well, I don't know. There's I I actually agree with like the Oliver Sacks idea, like that. There's some. It's either somebody really smart who was working with rats in a scientific lab, and that this is like the personal memoir side of that, or it's a YA book about talking rats. <laughs> no, there's no talking rats either way. You don't you think go. talking rats, even if it's no, a YA no, no. book. If oh, it's a YA reference. book, it's just that he was working in a lab and he was working with rats, and like that sort of defined him. And like he met the girl, and at first he didn't think he was going to get her because he works with rats and sort of strange and awkward. But she saw past that. No, but I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. Smart book by a smart scientist. Yeah, I think it's like the memoir, personal side of their their work. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, guys, this is really on the nose. It's a book called Rats <laughs> <laughs> by Robert Sullivan, and it is actually a nature writing about how disgusting the rats are that populate Manhattan. This book huh. was very popular for a while. Okay, uh, so next book. <clears throat> In those days, people moved more slowly down there, and Arch, who did just the opposite, might almost have been taken for a Yankee. Civil War era. 
Well, or I was—I mean, that's my first thought too. Is a Civil War era, and it's about the South. But maybe it could just be Yankee and like an American in Mexico kind of sense. But the character's name is Arch. It's not Red Badge of Courage because that's not no. the, the character's never named in that. But I'm thinking of other. Is there a Civil War era? Well, okay. I think it is taking place actually at the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the 20th century. So like 1920s, 15s, somewhere in there. And um, Arch is a young man with a mental disability um, that <laughs> is trying to figure out how to fix his family. I think it's a Southern crime novel. So I think it's like something happening in the South in a small town. And, um, you know, like I'm thinking, what's the book? Uh, Paris Trout. Like that style mm, of like kind of. Like Pete uh, Dexter. Yeah. That's like a, a very Pete Dexter. guess. A Pete Dextery kind of, you know, or Faulkner-esque wannabe. Tom Franklin. Okay. I yeah, see where you're going with that. The character named right. Arch is like, he's like a detective or something in this town. So people think he's a Yankee. He's like kind of That's an insider, outsider investigating a crime or something. All right. Just tell us. What is it? Okay. Um, it is not fiction. This uh. is the beginning of a... Uh, Truman Capote's biography. Oh. So what's amazing, Ryder, about your guess is that this is about a person who wrote Southern true crime. Yes, mm. indeed. But uh, the first line, Arch is Truman Capote's father, and it's about the moment that their parents, that his parents met. Oh, that's that interesting. first paragraph. Okay. Yeah. So um, that was number two. Great guessing. Great guessing. We're not doing too right. poorly. Number three. You guys have a real shot with this one, I think. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. Okay, young adult. Or children's book, I think. A Wrinkle in Time type thing, I think. Like that era of magical stories for children. Good guess. I have no clue. Okay, you want me to keep going? I yeah, one more line. More. One more line. Okay, uh, you're going to need a couple more. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. How is such a thing possible? I'll do my best to explain. As a child, I had simply no interest in books. I hated reading. I was very bad at it. And besides, how could you take time to read when there were games that shrieked for playing? All right. I, I, I'm kind of on to the young adult vibe now. I'll tell you right now that is correct. And I'm positive you guys know about the existence of this book. I believe this is Jumanji. <laughs> No. Is Jumanji a book yes. or just a movie? Jumanji is a book, but it's a picture book. Never an. Oh, you're so close. Oh, but oh, no. the book thief. <laughs> no. Oh, you guys. Oh, are so that takes close. place in Nazi Germany. What is another children's story about um, or a young adult like about a magical book or game or? Uh, you're just gonna tell us. You guys I can't, give up. I can't think of it. It is the Princess Bride. Oh. That is the First oh time. my god! Damn I've it. never I read that. Later. That's a perfect. I've never yeah, read it. Of course. Yeah, he's never read the book because it's read right. to him. Um. So, I I I tried ah. to. Is it a good book? It is a good book. Um, it's been a long time since I've read it. I love it. the movie. I, I think it's one of those rare occurrences where the movie is as good as the book and kind of maintains the same spirit. I don't remember anything from the book that. What did wasn't also delightful in the movie, but um, uh, maybe I'll reread it sometime and <laughs> give you more details. Uh, inconceivable. <laughs> Who is the great poet uh, Wallace Stegner? Says inconceivable. <laughs> great. 
<laughs> stars in okay, The Princess you were Bride. Fired from this podcast, and that was <laughs> Judge a Book by Its Yay. Cover, which isn't even what we do. <laughs> well, next up, next up, we have um, what I I think of as the people's champion, which is poet voice. Um, in poet voice, I take three things: one thing a poem, and two things not poems, and I read them using the same strange halting lilt of bad spoken word poets or just bad poets in general. The other part of poet voice that's important is that I add in a couple of words to make all of the poems sound the same. And those words are mother, father, and I hate you mother or I hate you father. Um, just, just to give it all sort of that sense of really good poetry. Mother, Six rounds, nine lives, you do the math. Calm down, I just came to get my things. Consider the effect of recoil, mother. You both know Jane. You two have a lot in common. It is my extended family. Mother, he had great health insurance, mother. You were always cold. We have to turn back. I forgot my scarf. Mother, it was a bad chair day. I hate you, father. It was a bad chair day? All right, that's poem number one. Poem number two. Mother, one of the students with blue hair and a tongue stud says that America is for him a maximum security prison. Father, whose walls are made of Radio Shacks and Burger Kings and MTV episodes where you can't tell the show from the commercials. And as I consider how to express how full of shit I think he is, Father says that even when he's driving to the mall in his Azuzu Trooper with a gang of his friends, letting rap music pour over them like a boiling jacuzzi full of ball-peen hammers, even then he feels buried alive, Mother suffocated in the folds of the thick satin quilt of America. Father, I wonder if this is a legitimate category of pain or whether he has just been doctoring a better grade. I hate you, Mom. Tony Hoagland. God damn you. <laughs> I knew that poem. Yeah, that's, that was what I was thinking after I realized that you were a big Tony Hoagland fan. Yep. We actually haven't, I mean, I haven't read that one or talked about it on this show, but I, I know the Great. poem. <laughs> Shall I continue? Yes. Yeah. The third one. How dare you. That's the poem America, by the way, from Tony Hoagland, which is a wonderful poem. I only read mm -hmm. part of it. Mother. This has been a profit-based society for the last 20 years, and that's why we all have to die. Ugh. Mother, had this been a resource-based society, we would have stopped that asteroid a month ago. Mother, mm. or even two months ago, because we would have been prepared. Father, tonight we need you to go on TV and stress that very point. You accuse the government of allowing corporate greed. Mother, to kill the earth, you get the people angry. Mother, I hate you, father. Is that from Armageddon? What is that? <laughs> no, wait a minute. Okay, it could be from Armageddon. It's about a, a meteor killing the earth. Is it The Last Policeman, that, that book that you were talking about? It is wait. not. 
It no, wait, not. wait. And it's not a quote from the movie Armageddon. It is, is not. Is this like about the Russian, the piece the of Russian... asteroid that hit Russia? <laughs> it is not. Really? It's not about. It not. So it's got to no. be a fictional thing about it's going on television to talk about the end of the world. But it was kind of a great line. We're not a profit-based society, or we've been a profit-based society. So that's why we're, we're going to die. A resource. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about the first one. Well, I thought it was going to be something about the gun, gun laws, control. the recent yeah gun control because it had all this firing. But then there's all this stuff about Jane and the chair and what? Like I come back after I was there. Okay, I think this is um, this is about someone picking up their loved one from prison, <laughs> and their loved one has just killed someone, um, but they've. Yeah, and and the the person picking them up is still obsessed with the murder that has happened. Okay. I feel like it has something to do with a school shooting. You guys, you guys are never going to get it. Okay, <laughs> what is it? Uh, it is the last several weeks of uh, submissions to the New Yorker cartoon caption contest. Oh my oh god! My god. <laughs> <laughs> the that three finalists is... from. So, six rounds, nine lives, you do the math, calm down, I just came to get my things, consider the effect of recoil. Those are all the finalists this week, which is a picture... I saw that one with the cat and the rat. rat and the cat, <laughs> and the rat has Back a gun. Back to rats. Mm-hmm. All right, what's the third one? The third one is a book called Cannibal Rain by <laughs> Thomas Kalaniar. It came in the mail for me a year ago, and I was going through my stack of books that I never looked at or reviewed and came across it. Um, uh, I will give you the rundown of what Cannibal Rain is about. Astronomer Mary Chittenden is the first to recognize the approaching doom, a discovery that makes him a marked man. Green Beret Jack Forrest knows the catastrophe is is inevitable and begins stockpiling an abandoned missile silo with supplies. While gathering together a small community of men, women, and children, he prays can survive the apocalypse. Then disaster strikes, dot, 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 dot. Noah's Ark is mentioned. Uh, All right, so the Armageddon reference wasn't completely off. We're we're in the same vein. And it was dialogue, so uh, it's a woman talking to a man. Awesome. So, yes, Cannibal Rain. we failed horribly. Yes. Well, no, because Ryder knew the poem. Oh, So Ryder wins. Great job, Ryder. Good job, Ryder. Good job. And now we head off to... I think the most aptly named of our games, Classics Corner with two Ks. Not three. Just two. But two. Ryder, take it away. Today's Classics Corner with two Ks um, I, <laughs> is a little book called On the Road oh. by Jack Kerouac. Oh. Okay. Okay. Um, which I don't know. Actually, I can't remember. Have you guys, either of you, really read this book? I have read it. Uh, I have not read it in a thousand years. Um, Okay. So it's in there. It's in there. We've talked about it on the show before. I remember because I actually played him reading a clip of it. Yeah, that was a great clip. Yeah. Selection number one. Then a complete silence fell over everybody. Where once Dean would have talked his way out, he now fell silent himself. But standing in front of everybody, ragged and broken and idiotic, right under the light bulbs, his bony, mad face covered with sweat and throbbing veins, saying, yes, yes, yes as though tremendous revelations were pouring into him all the time now, and I am convinced they were, and the others suspected as much and were frightened. He was beat, the root, the soul of beatific. What was he knowing? 
He tried in all his power to tell me what he was knowing, and they envied that about me, my position at his side, defending him and drinking him in as they once tried to do. Then they looked at me. What was I, a stranger, doing on the West Coast this fair night? Selection mm. number two. <laughs> Dig the girls, said Dean. Girls, girls. And I have also been digging the houses as we drive, which puts me in the mind of Africa. Dirt floors. The old men, Sal, do you see how they sleep on the earth? He drove at five miles per hour. He pointed. He was knocked out by everything. Burrows and hipsters and open vests. Faces peered from doorways. The pimps and whores of Mexico with their skin the color of grapes and their secret Indian ways. This was Beat, the true fellaheen and Dean the Mad Americano in a t-shirt and Levi's, all before he left me, stomach aches and dysentery, like Camille said he would. Hmm. Selection number three. <laughs> People talked in groups all around the room, and he said, Yes, that's right. A picture on the wall made him stiffen to attention. He went up and looked closer. He backed up. He stopped. He jumped up. He wanted to see from all possible levels and angles. He tore his t-shirt in exclamation, Damn! He had no idea the impression he was making and cared less. People were now beginning to look at Dean with maternal and paternal affection glowing in their faces. He was finally an angel, as I always knew he would become. But like any angel, he still had rages and furies. And that night, we all left the party and repaired to the Windsor Bar in one vast brawling gang. Dean became frantically and demonically and seraphically drunk. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, well... What do you think, Todd? I have some ideas. Um, well, see, Ryder has uh, clearly tried to fool us by using that beat line twice. Um, this was beat. This was beat. My first inclination was that the first one was the fake one. But now, I think the third one actually is the fake one. It's the, um, it's Seraph seraphically drunk there's something about the term seraphically drunk that makes me think it is not authentic to the book well i definitely agree with you that it is not number two is definitely on the road because i don't think that Ryder would make a lot of statements about the color of mexican whore's skin <laughs> well, that's Indian where you're ways. wrong. <laughs> so I think that although I, hipster is a such a specific word, <laughs> um, is would not go there um, for the sake of this game. And I think like the phrase "the mad americano" definitely stands out to me. I'm sure I read that. So I think that is definitely on the road. Um, okay, but the first one, the yes, yes, yes part, that is James Joycean. Is this mm. a slip? Or is this Joyce actually influencing Jack Kerouac? Well, and there's also the... See, hmm, I, I'm still going with three, but it's that fair night line also makes me think, ah, that's a strange line. What was I, a stranger, doing on the West Coast this fair night? Because... Um, what I guess Kerouac was not from California. Hmm. No, he wasn't. Um, but what's his name was Dean? Yeah, Dean was. And then in the third one, we also have this capitalized angel business. But I think I think the third one is the one writer wrote. I, agree I think with the you. third one is the one writer wrote. Yes. Okay, that is our. Should we go? Should we take the same? 
same Final way. answer, number three. You guys three. are going all in that number three I'm is pushing it. all my chips into the center of the metaphorical classic corner. You're wrong! Oh. Thank oh. God above. Oh. Oh. I finally Damn you. redeemed myself. Oh, Christ. Number it's number two. Oh. Is it really? The one that we both yes. thought was accurate. Oh. Yes. Oh, my God. I, I, I totally played the racist card because wow. he does this throughout the book entirely. He has like this note. I mean, he talks about, you know, at one point he wanders Denver and he's talking about like the, you know, the, the Negroes and their dark ways. So he does this kind of stuff all the time. Oh and I knew, God, and so I'm so bad. glad that Julia picked up on that because I was like, she will never think that the Indian ways and, or, you know, skin the color of grapes, which are both phrases from the book. So I, I just, you know, but yeah, I figured that was a nice one to throw you off for a lose lose because if of I'm course like, oh did somebody hard. put poor dorothea exclamation point in every single one of the selections that they chose that's i believe so wait excuse me that's the same as saying mother in every single one it's just right, but hold on Okay, but you but you had to find two that did that i right. actually thought i was screwing myself by giving you the two beat lines because those that meant if you guys decided that I had copied one of the other one or the other, then I had a 50-50 shot, mm. right? Because it was this is beat, this was beat. The root, the soul of beatific is the actual quote from the book, and I wrote this was beat the true fellahin, and fellahin is a term that he uses throughout the book too. But you, I sort of you got <laughs> wow. me so bad because I yes. believe in you. We want <laughs> to think the best of you, Ryder. That was serious manipulation. That was smart. We just know you to be a good person, Ryder, and you played on our sympathies <laughs> oh, for no. your goodness. No, you, you also got distracted by Seraphically. You both I thought did. that was Ryder being too, like, Ridery. literarily. <laughs> and, and I also uh, you thought know. this fair night was a stupid thing you may have thrown in. To throw us off. <laughs> I thought but so actually, well. he, he uses the, he, I almost put all quotes that use the word night because he's always talking about the American night or the crazy Mexican night or whatever. So, yeah, but that's a weird phrasing. The question, this fair night, and having to be a question is kind of unusual for Kerouac. Yeah, that's odd. You, got, you really got us. Great you job. You got us, Ryder. Ryder, I think, God. really came big in the entire... Uh, like, he's going to win all the prizes from the birthday games today. Because he got Tony Hoagland, he bamboozled us, and he, I think, accurately predicted the science angle first with the rats book. Yep. So he's going home with all of the, the prizes from the birthday. Oh, he gets right. the extra piece of cake. The prizes are no a rat, <laughs> a rat, a, a Mexican whore. Oh, and, and the and the the double um, of shoots and ladders that Robbie Dalton brought to the party. Um, so we get two two shoots and ladders. You get the extra one. Wow, I can't believe. Wow, that was genius, Ryder. Seriously, genius. You you have, I think, a rare gift of making us think higher of you. <laughs> Well, should I should we close off with me singing um, the Ruby's Diner birthday song to us? Yes. Oh, you actually know the Ruby's Diner birthday song? Well, I worked at Ruby's Diner when I was in college, and I had to sing this song every single day for the year and a half that I worked there. And I'm now happy to sing it to Literary Disco. Are you guys prepared? Hey, we're here to celebrate a very special day—the day that Literary Disco was born. And we'd like to say we're gonna sing and dance and play. Hey. We're gonna blow out the candles and you'll be on your way. It's your birthday now. Do what you want to do. It's Literary Disco's birthday party and I'll sing it for you. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! Yay!
and, and then you get a free little yeah. Sunday. And then, that is a Sunday. truly bizarre song. And then, yeah, so imagine it being sung by a bunch of frat boys who, um, right before they delivered your food, put their balls in your sandwich, and that and you know what Ruby's Diner at the Topanga Please Plaza Please do not tell like. me you ever did that. I didn't personally, but my friend Vitaly. Oh my god! That's awful! <laughs> he, uh, he was notable for really spending a lot of time with his balls in people's food. <laughs> This is the second episode where we're mentioning balls. We can't keep doing this. This Why is bad. Why did you take us from an adorable ending to a horror story? Ryder will edit this so it's proper. You don't need to worry about it, Julia. No one will ever hear this. Yeah, just like no one will ever think that balls were resting on their sandwich. <laughs> you have to assume if you're dining at a place where you see a lot of young men working that they put their balls on your food. That's just how it oh my is. God. I'm never eating out again. You never, never. should. And that's it for this episode and one year of literary disco. Join us next week when we finally read the book I mentioned last week, which is Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles by Ron Curry Jr. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. Thanks for listening. So-